It's time for the 3304 Sports Podcast with your hosts Dan Steinbach, and Clayton Pfeiffer. Welcome into the 3304 Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Steinbach. Joined alongside me are Cole Bjorn Bergstrom and Clayton Pfeiffer. Uh, we got a lot to get into today. Hopefully make this a little shorter of an episode than our previous two. But uh, hope you all had a good week. Uh, we had a spring break day here at Virginia Tech on Tuesday. Hope you all enjoyed that. Beautiful day today. Uh, we are recording this on Wednesday, April 7th. Just been spectacular weather outside. Spring is here and I'm ready. I'm ready for summer. I'm ready for summer. I'm ready for school to be over. But yeah, really excited for what's upcoming. Guys, how are you guys doing today? I'm, I'm doing all right personally. Uh, how about something? Uh, I'm doing great. It was a nice crisp 82 degrees where, where I'm at. So pretty good day. So yeah, yeah, definitely. Turn the AC off, crack the window. Very, very nice weather here in Blacksburg for us. So uh, I, I want to start off today because... And like I said, there's a lot of news, but I, I want to keep this episode a little bit shorter. So I want to run through some topics real quick. And I want to start off here in the NFL because there was one big thing that happened this past week, and it had to do with Sam Darnold going to the Panthers. Panthers trading a sixth-round pick this year, a second-round pick, and fourth-round pick next year. Darnold obviously going from the Jets to Carolina. Uh, this shakes up the draft in a little bit because now it seems that the Jets are locked in at two for a quarterback, likely Zach Wilson. I mean, I've eh, – I thought for so long that that was the obvious way that this draft was going to go, but now it seems more clear. Sam Darnold's not there, not the quarterback of the future there anymore. And the Panthers get a uh, one year, I guess, test of what they have in Sam Darnold, what's left with him. Uh, a lot of big reactions coming out of this, but I don't really have too many thoughts on it because I mean, look at the end of the day, I think Sam Darnold is not a good quarterback. Uh, he's definitely shown flashes um, of potential. It's just that he hasn't been able to do anything with that. He hasn't been consistent. And of course there's the angle that he was with Adam Gase and Adam Gase is not a good coach, not a good offensive coach. No idea who came up with that, but yeah, he kind of ruined his start to his career and hopefully uh, Darnold doesn't have that linger with him for the rest of his career and especially with Carolina this upcoming season because honestly I feel this is the best chance with everything that else has that's gone around with Carolina uh with their position in the draft they're not going to get one of the top four quarterbacks and as of right now I would say I'd take Sam Darnold over Mac Jones for next season uh that's just me personally I mean the only negative to this trade I think could be the 2020 second round pick uh 2022 second round pick um maybe that's too much for Sam Darnold I'm not exactly sure uh but it it shakes up the draft it I mean, somewhat. Now you have the question of what Carolina is going to do at eight. Personally, if a quarterback like a Fields or a Lance fell to eight, I still wouldn't pass on either of them. I think that that's a logical way to move on with it. You could get Darnold, you can have a rookie, um, and you can just see. But yeah, I don't really have too many big opinions on this. Uh, I'll throw it to Colburn. Uh, what were your thoughts on Sam Darnold to the Panthers? Um, I, I like a lot of the things that you said. And one of the things I want to highlight for a lot of people that are saying like, this is overvalue. I can kind of agree, but you have to realize that Sam Darnold was drafted as the third overall pick three years ago in the 2018 NFL draft. So, I mean, this is like a very steep decline of like what his value was seen as just a few years ago. Um, as you said, there's been flashes of brilliance. I mean, even in like, uh, one of the big things out of this was the, 
uh, amazing uh, social media work that Carolina did for this, but showing some of those excellent moments that he's had, um, like he's shown flashes comparatively to like some of his other counterparts from that draft that he can be something in the NFL. It's just a function of whether, I mean, he can really, if he could have ever matched that third overall value. I don't think he was ever going to match that with, even with how he's performed in the flashes he's had. For the value that Carolina got for him, though maybe it's a little bit too much with how he is right now, in general, if you're actually able to give him a good system, in which it's not that bad. Is Christian McCaffrey definitely the best running back he's worked with? I mean, overall, as McCaffrey was kind of hitting his prime, not last season since he was injured most of the time, but the year before. Um, he's got some good weapons, uh, and he's got a very aggressive organization around him that wants to be getting better. Um, so I really like the fit for Darnold in Carolina. And then for Carolina, as you said, it's basically with how the draft's situated, which is something I'd like to get into as well uh, at, at some point. Um, it, it like It's kind of like they're going to get the fifth quarterback. So whether that's Mac Jones, Trey Lance, Justin Fields, obviously we, uh, we like Trey Lance, Justin Fields, and everyone, but it's, it's more of a function of are you confident in that player or would you rather take uh, someone like Sam Darnold for way cheaper value comparatively to drafting a uh, quarterback with the top 10 pick. And then maybe at eight, you can get Kyle Pitts, uh, maybe Patrick Sertan, Caleb Farley, JC Horn, um, you know, so some sort of defensive piece, some sort of offensive piece to support Sam Darnold. I, I think that's kind of the better scenario for the Panthers. And that's what they decided to come to with getting Darnold. Uh, what about you, Clayton? Um, yeah, I would have to agree with what you all said. Um, I think Sam Donald at the uh, Panthers was, was going to look pretty good based off of the weapons that you stated, like Christian McCaffrey, and the other receivers that Carolina has. In terms of for like the Jets, I'm interested to see what they do with the uh, picks that they got. Um, I know that Daniel mentioned some of the options that they could go for, but I'm just inter- interested in how the Jets actually go about that, that situation. Also, um, I feel like Sam Donald, for the price that the uh, Panthers got him for, I feel like it can be looked at as too high. But on the other hand, in terms of if the Panthers can coach him right and make him play, ba- make him play well based on the weapons they have, I feel like it'd be a good. It, I feel like that price will show that like its value in the upcoming season. So yeah, that's my whole take on it. All right, and Colburn, you said that uh, you had some notes on the draft, right? And I, I think I know what you want to lean into, and I'll preface it with this. Uh, there was a report, Adam Schefter uh, said that the Atlanta Falcons could be on the phone fielding some calls for number four. Uh, number four could be where the draft ends up starting. I mean, you look at we, – we talked about it last week with the 49ers trading up to three. And, of course, you have the Jaguars and the Jets. With those three spots uh, seemingly – being chosen already with quarterbacks in those spots. Uh, it seems like the draft could start at four, whether or not Atlanta goes quarterback or whether or not they take one of these deals. Uh, yeah. So a lot of the stuff that before, as you said, that there was um, trade calls uh, or at least there's offers starting to like get onto the table for uh, people to move up to four, because it's been felt for a while that the jets weren't going to move from two. So there hasn't really been many offers coming their way. And with trading Darnold, I think it's, just about confirmed that they are not going to move from two and they're going to take whatever quarterback they prefer. We kind of think uh, Zach Wilson here. Um, so with four, and I actually love that you brought this up. 
Uh, this kind of leaves you with one of two fields, and I'm going to talk about, I want to talk about one of them specifically. Um, you have the first field of a team could be trading up here to take a player that they really like, whether that's one of the receivers on uh, in this draft class, which with how most people have been saying, it sound like that'd be Jamar Chase. Uh, whether someone wants to crazily move up for like a defender, though a lot of like the offensive guys have been highly valued, like whether someone really, really likes her tan or something. Uh, or offensive lineman, Rayshon Slater's stock's been rising a lot. Uh, Panice Wells' stock's been high. He's been called a generational talent. Um, and then even tight end at Kyle Pitts. There are a lot of guys at four, as you said, like where the draft could really start, and it's not just quarterbacks. But the second vein, which is really what I want to get into and pitch a couple teams here, is trading up for a quarterback. First pick, Trevor Lawrence. Second pick, we're kind of all assuming Zach Wilson. And the third, it's either Mac Jones, Justin Fields, or Trey Lance, which means that three of the top five quarterbacks that we've been talking about for like months now are off the board at the first three picks, which is going to increase, not like just increase the value of the other two quarterbacks that will still be there. So I kind of feel like if Atlanta is going to trade this down, it's most likely to a team that's also going to be taking quarterback, which feels really weird and unprecedented. But uh, with like how many teams feel very desperate for quarterbacks, I, I can understand why that's happening, particularly with if three guys are off the board. As I said, teams are going to start to get a little bit antsy if they're going to miss out on one of the top guys. So the two teams that I specifically want to pitch moving up for quarterback are the Denver Broncos. Uh, they've upgraded on defense a little bit this offseason, and I feel like they're a team that if you fit in like a Justin Fields or a Trey Lance, uh, that you could really have something with that quarterback. Um so, because I feel like their offense is decent, their defense, they just added Kendall Fuller and Ronald Darby. They were able to keep Kareem Jackson, uh, keep Vaughn Miller. So they still have a pretty solid defense. Um, it's unfortunate for Drew Locke because I like him, but I think that the Denver Broncos are eyeing up a move to that, particularly if it's only moving down five spots. It's not going to be, uh, you know, like three first round picks to get a quarterback there. And the other team I've been uh, thinking of is New England Patriots. Cam Newton's there on a cheap contract. Bill Belichick has done a lot this offseason to try to fix the team up to be able to push for the playoffs next year. And when you look at the division of um, the AFC East, you have Josh Allen, relatively young. Um, like he's only been in the NFL for actually a few years now. He was Darnold's class. You have Tua Tungavailoa, second year quarterback. Uh, and you're going to have most likely, let's say, Zach Wilson, who's going to be in the first year of his contract. That means that New England has a division with three young up-and-coming quarterbacks and New England's there with Cam Newton in which though all respect to him he's an incredible player um, he didn't do well after COVID last year and he's on a cheaper contract so I think that New England's in more of a position to move up here with that Cam Newton contract to go and get Trey Lance, Justin Fields, Mac Jones, whoever falls and I think that they could be really good with them and I mean, I, I mean, it could take a lot more value than it would like for Denver, but I think it's something where that's what New England really should be looking for. It's like that, and I think a very dynamic running back would be great for their offense. And then if they get those things, I'd be very scared of them. Yeah, uh, I like those two teams you mentioned, especially New England, because I have this lingering feeling that they're going to do something because they're not going to sit there at 15 and watch five quarterbacks go away, I think. I mean, they don't like you said, it was perfectly said, Josh Allen, uh, Tua, and now probably Zach Wilson. I mean, they're kind of running behind and Bill made a lot of aggressive moves with those free agency signings that were kind of the talk of the town. 
uh, it would need to be a lot to move up from 15 to four. Cause I mean, it's not you just moving up 11 spots. It's yep. a team dropping 11 spots. So you need to give them a lot to uh, maybe make something like that happen. I think it could maybe also involve an incremental move. Like maybe you move up into the top 10 first and then you go shoot for four. That would cost a lot of assets, but uh, it's something to maybe think about uh, for New England. Keep your eye on them. I would definitely agree. Um, in terms of the other NFL news, we'll talk about it in the future. I got the NFL draft coming up at the end of this month. Definitely an exciting time for sure. But now I want to switch to the college circuit this past weekend. Was very uh, laced with a lot of college basketball talk. And I want to actually bring it to today because following the championship, we obviously get the way too early top 25s. And there's a little bit of local bias here when it comes to reading these because I mean, it's only one of them. It's ESPN's Jeff Borzello's uh, way too early top 25. It's the only one that has Virginia Tech in it, but it's not just in the top 25. It's in the top 10. He's got Virginia Tech at 10. uh, That's second in the ACC behind Florida State. And right after, uh, I checked an article on The Athletic, and it had some odds from MGM with uh, title odds for next year's national champion. And Virginia Tech was in that top 10 at plus 2,000. Now, I haven't looked at any other uh, odds makers. I'm seeing that they're around 2,500, which, again, it's in that top 15. Um, tied with a lot of other teams. It's really early on. And I'm sure those numbers will shift. But, I mean, it gets you excited. I mean, I've been excited about next year's team for a while now, looking at their age and not having to endure COVID breaks, hopefully. But, yeah, and, of course, big news today, got Michael Durr. Michael Durr, uh, 7-foot-plus, 250-pound center out of the transfer portal from South Florida. Uh, I mean, averaged 9-8 and this past season for the Bulls. I mean, this is what Mike Young needed. Mike Young has, has come to town, and I mean, this is the first time in a while, I think, in Virginia Tech basketball overall, that they've had a seven-footer. And when you look at the games where they were severely outmatched, I mean, you point to the ACC tournament in against North Carolina, and you point to the game against Florida in the tournament. I mean, those are the last two games of the season and two games that they lost, and partially due to their lack of size inside. I mean, Colin Castleton for Florida and the just – number of pigs that North Carolina can get on their roster. I mean, that was the reason. I mean, you had Bacot and you had Kessler, who's now the transfer portal, but still teams like that will have success against Virginia Tech if they can take advantage of their lack of size. And now Michael Durr being, whether he's a starter or a rotational guy that can clean up the glass and maybe be a rim protector, and he can even be a little bit of a scorer. uh, I mean, that's just a big piece added uh, to this team. And I've mentioned before how I think that Virginia Tech's main six can – uh, compete with anyone. I think you throw Michael Durr into that. You make that a core of seven, and then you get some uh, other contributions. Days, guys like David Nassan and Darius Maddox, uh, they improve from their performances in their freshman years. I think that this team really has a lot of potential, and I think it can come with some lofty expectations. Again, we still have a long ways to go until the beginning of the season. Maybe they add another piece, but I mean, this is really exciting news for me. What are you guys' reactions to hearing this this morning? Well, for me, I'm I'm personally a little bit surprised because of uh, – just because we've talked about the expectations for this team, but um, obviously we're only going to be in year three of Mike Young next year. So for me personally, I'm not expecting greatness still, but the fact that we are flirting with the top 25 this year 
And the fact that we really have that because he's a seven footer, Michael Durr is going to be a huge uh, portion of the team uh, for rebounds and hopefully even like some blocks and whatnot. Um, I'm very excited for his addition overall. I'm just very shocked that we are rated that highly. Um, I mean, cool. I, I, I like being very top 10. It's, it's cool to see your team up there, particularly, uh, you know, w- when we haven't been like, a basketball school specifically for so long. So it's awesome to see them like up there amongst Kansas and Florida state and uh, Gonzaga and Baylor and a lot of the others. So I'll take it. Uh, It's just getting me even more pumped for next college basketball season. Oh, for sure. Definitely. And uh, again, it is only just the one guy, like everyone else doesn't even have us in there. Like Andy Katz put out a top 36 and Virginia tech wasn't on it. So that to me, that was a little, Harsh, it's a very conservative uh, play because, I mean, at the end of this year, Virginia Tech, I mean, just due to the advanced stats, I mean, you look at Ken Palm, Virginia Tech was one of the worst teams in the tournament, uh, definitely on the Power 5 scale. I mean, there were obviously teams below Virginia Tech uh, and from those one-conference uh, leagues. But, man, I'm telling you, I'm excited. The addition of Storm Murphy and Michael Durr from the transfer portal will really help this team out. Uh, Clayton, let's throw it to you. I, I want to hear your thoughts on this. Uh, and with the addition of this of this player, I feel like I feel like we have a good shot of doing all right, like better than we did last, this season. But like you said, it, it's only one dude, and um, and a bunch of the other reports that came out like rating us. I feel like we're not that highly rated, but I'm excited to see how this season turns out with the addition of this of Durr, um, and seeing how we how we how we can fit into our lineup like you said before our lineup wasn't that wasn't too had many two like big guys on there but with this addition this one dude i feel like we can we can do pretty pretty good with this addition so that's all i have on that one thing i'll say for certain is we aren't going to be ranked uh you know bottom of the acc i think next season no i don't think so either um and again as we get closer and closer to next basketball season We'll start to hear more about this and a lot of the same things will be said about how this team can improve from last year. But I mean, versatility in lineups, one thing again, just overall size being better is another thing. Uh, And again, there's a long way from here to there, but like you said, we'll probably won't be near the bottom of the ACC, especially after that top four finish. Um, In terms of expectations, I think that a repeat of top four is definitely a bar that I think that, at least for myself, I think that a top four finish in the ACC is realistic. I, I honestly do. I mean, North Carolina is going to have to retool without Roy Williams. Uh, Duke's uh, probably not going to have two bad years in a row. Going to have to see what UVA is doing. I mean, UVA is having a lot of people leave through the transfer portal. Not exactly sure how influential those players are to their program, but uh, they'll get some new guys in. Now, Florida State, obviously, Florida State will probably be the favorite going into next oh, yeah. year. So very, very exciting. Honestly, I, I think that Virginia Tech will definitely be in that mix. And I think there will be a, that five, those five schools, the UNC, Duke, FSU, and then UVA and BT. I think those five schools will definitely be up there for uh, I think ACC championship contention going for next season. Yeah, I, I think it's fair um, for like uh, ACC, like uh, people who watch it neutrally or just overall and uh, for BT fans and whatnot. I think it is a reasonable expectation to say repeat of top four. Personally, I would love to see top three. 
Uh, I still don't expect anything. I'd love to see top one. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, of course. I'd love that. Don't but, we all? <laughs> I mean, I, I'd, I'd love to see progress from this team. Um, I, I guess it's just a matter of who decides to move on from the ECC, uh, like from like other ACC teams and who wants to go into the draft, because I don't think that many right, right. Tech players, like at least of the core group, want to go. So the, I, I, I feel confident that Virginia Tech's going to stay strong. It's just going to be a matter of some of these other uh, big teams. And as you said, I think UNC – might take a little bit of a step back this year just because of loss of Roy and you kind of need to build up again. Um, but yeah, definitely looking out for Duke because they always get good recruits. UVA because it's UVA and FSU because they've been incredible uh, under, I, I think, uh, sorry if I get the name wrong, but I'm pretty sure it's Leonard Hamilton, yeah? Yeah. Um, I, 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 yeah, I think, right, right, right. I think, uh, I think a logical expectation for this team. I, I mean, there are definitely marks that they'll probably set for themselves, but I think that this team can do many things and it doesn't just stop at repeating as a double buy in the ACC tournament. It could also be winning an ACC tournament game, winning two ACC, ACC oh, yeah. tournament games, winning the ACC tournament, winning the regular season ACC championship, um, getting out of the first round of the NCAA tournament, getting out of the first weekend at the NCAA tournament, stuff like that. This team I think has really sky high potential. Um, and again, transfer portals not set. Got to see what the schedule's looking like. Uh, Got to see what the makeup of this team is at the end of the day. But there's reason to be excited. And I trust Mike Young. That's, that's basically what it comes down to. I trust Mike Young <laughs> yeah. uh, a lot. And basketball makes me excited, man. This basketball team, this basketball program really, really makes me excited. And seeing this news today, it got, it, it was, it was, it was awesome because I, w- I woke up, I woke up at like noon today because I stayed up a little late last night, but I mean, I woke up and he, Michael Durr tweeted from his account and said, Hey, I'm, on a Hokie. And that was awesome. So good news to see there. Yep. Uh, I want to turn that into some news from last week. Uh, I saw the women's championship game. Wasn't able to catch the final four. I'm a little busy with some Easter weekend activities, but mm-hmm. uh, I was able to t- catch the championship game. I was on actually zoom call with my family for the second and third quarters, but I caught the start and end of the game, very competitive game. Um, Stanford actually came out really strong, but then when I went back to getting it my full attention, Arizona clawed their way back. Went down to the last possession, man. Uh, and Stanford played really well defensively on that last possession to win the national championship. The tidbit that I took away from this game was actually something that I saw on social media. And it was the fact that Stanford Athletics for the past 45 years has won at least one team national championship. And I think that's just absurd because so many programs in college athletics just can't seem to do anything right. And here's Stanford just winning anything they want in whatever sport category. Uh, for 45 straight years. I mean, that continued dominance of success really speaks to the quality that they have in their athletics department and just their higher ups in general, because I mean, you gotta, you gotta have the resources uh, and the care to really not just focus on say one or two sports at a time, but really spread all that out uh, amongst your athletic department. And I, I think a lot of colleges should definitely look at whatever model they're running and follow that because I mean, hey, I know a lot of schools would want to see national championships in multiple sports. Uh, so I, I guess I'll just leave it at that. I thought that was just a really interesting factoid. Uh, and almost absurd, because, I mean, that's, to me, 45 straight years winning a national championship in at least one sport, that to me is an absurd number. Like, that's, that's crazy. It just doesn't happen anywhere else. Uh, so I found that interesting. So then I want to turn to the final four. Uh, I didn't catch most – I didn't catch the second half of the Baylor-Houston game because I was streaming on my laptop because I don't have cable. And uh, Baylor just – Destroyed Houston in the first half. My laptop died. I didn't watch the second half. I figured, okay, yeah, game's over, whatever. Um, but it, 
Then we go to the Gonzaga UCLA game, which was for me, the craziest game I've ever seen. I think that that game will be a game that I remember for the rest of my life. Like there are other games in that atmosphere, but that was one of the most wire to wire, you know, shot for shot. The biggest lead of the game, I think was UCLA seven. And then I think Gonzaga's biggest lead of the game was six. Like that's how tight this game was. It was never a double digit game. Like, a run in this game would be you making two baskets in a row and then someone else would come back and make another two baskets in a row. It, that's, that's the type of back and forth it was. Uh, UCLA was awesome. Um, Juzang and them were hitting those crazy mid-range shots that ultimately did not pay off, but it kept them in it. The fact that it went to overtime and of course the Jalen Suggs shot. Jalen Suggs shot is probably the second best shot I've ever seen. And it has to go behind Chris Jenkins and it only has to go behind Chris Jenkins only because uh I mean, Chris Jenkins for the national championship, man. You can't top that if you don't win the national championship for the next game. But I don't know, man. That game was just incredible. That Jalen Suggs moment was awesome. Had me out of my seat. Um, yeah, it was crazy. Best game I ever saw. And the fact that it ended the way that it did was just that cherry on top. What were your guys' thoughts on the Gonzaga-UCLA game? Because it's a game that will probably be lost to history in a little bit now. Uh, considering the fact of what went down on Monday night. Uh, I'll throw it to Colbjorn first. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I wanted to catch more of it, but actually I was able to converse with some of the people in my uh, dorm and whatnot. But I was able to catch the end of both quarters. And I, I must say that's the most excited for basketball I have been in a while. I think part of it was because of um, the, the, the bracket and being able to compete with people. But some of it also was just because of the, the – Overall play, specifically because I was able, as I said, watch the end of the uh, second half and the end of overtime. Um, and, uh, like, watching the uh, shot go in and then watching overall how the play broke down for Gonzaga and seeing Jalen Suggs shoot it, it was just one of those moments where I just kind of, I think, called out, like, open him, like, he hit that, didn't he? And then he did, and it was something where I got up out of my seat and I went crazy for it. It was one of the best finishes to a game we've seen. Uh, you have big NBA players who are talking about, it. I think, LeBron and Dwayne Wade, like a couple of the biggest. Um, I think that just shows, like, a lot of the potential that Suggs has and that whole team has. It was such an incredible game, and I was happy that UCLA was able to put up what they put up because it was an incredible game from both teams, and it's just going to be good for their organizations, I think, going forward. Yeah, I would have to agree. Um, I don't personally watch college basketball that often. I don't follow it as closely as others do. But seeing that, I watched um, the last quarter, the last uh, half, the last overtime, I mean. And um, it was just a crazy game. Um, I was out of my seat. I was interested in how it all played out. And seeing, coming from the standpoint of a fan that doesn't really follow college basketball and seeing how, like, how back and forth that game was it was uh, it was just crazy to support, crazy to watch and, and seeing that game winning shot oh I, it, it got me out of the seat and cheering I was like because you don't see game winning shots as often as you think but seeing that one go in last second oh it was amazing particularly shots and, on um, that level exactly yeah the, that shot it was just completely it was crazy but it really got me thinking it was like I really got me thinking like maybe I should follow college basketball because seeing how seeing other games and seeing like how other games turned out like it's crazy to see crazy to see those things happen 
Yeah, and I would definitely recommend that you follow college basketball because I think March Madness <laughs> is just the best, uh, the best sporting event of the year annually. You're at a, you're at a great um, right now. Yeah, right. And so, with that said, we go to the championship game, which happened Monday night. Uh, Baylor from clock to clock was just the best. They like they dominated Gonzaga. Now the final score wasn't too special. I mean, it's a 16 point win, but given the level of competition, that was just total domination. I've got some notes here. Um, but it's just more of the same of what you've heard from analysts. I mean, Baylor's energy and defense, this game were spectacular. Uh, they were in every lane on defense. They were tipping every pass. I swear that was just, they forced so many turnovers this game. Um, at one point Gonzaga was literally shooting seven for 15 when Baylor was shooting 14 for 30. So they had taken twice as many shots and made twice as many shots. Baylor was just getting them up. The offensive rebounds, Baylor won in a landslide. Uh, they grabbed 16 more boards, 11 more offensive rebounds. So that's 11 more offensive possessions just off rebounds for Baylor. Like, that's crazy. They took 18 more shots through the whole game. They hit five more threes, which, I mean, that's that's the difference. 15 threes, uh, 15 points right there in a 16-point game. Like, Gonzaga hit some more threes. That game, that game gets closer. But Baylor was just knocking them down. The, the turnover battle, Baylor won. Jalen Suggs had to go out with an early two fouls. Uh, and that really disrupted Gonzaga's offensive rhythm early. The Baylor pick and roll game, like that offense that Scott Drew was running was just awesome. They were able to do whatever they wanted. Uh, Gonzaga's inside defense was horrible, pretty much. I mean, they were able to do whatever they wanted. Uh, they didn't let anything inside on the defense. They were just harassing Drew Timmy pretty much the entire night. Um, Gonzaga's bigs overall were just not a factor. And Mark Feitel, who is a six foot five, listed as a guard, he's their power forward, and he grabbed 11 rebounds, eight offensive rebounds. One dude grabbed eight offensive rebounds, and he's short compared to Gonzaga's big men. Like, Baylor was just incredible. And, you know, there's the talk of their COVID pause and the fact that they lost to Kansas and lost to Oklahoma State. Uh, could they have been an undefeated team? Sure. I mean, but the fact was, these were the two best teams in the country the entire way through the season. They had a game canceled earlier on, and I was so upset when we missed it because I knew we could have had a classic there, but we got a classic instead. Uh, and it came out with Baylor on top. I mean, it was just a fun game. It was a fun game to watch. I, I'm not too – I know some people aren't too big on blowouts, and this game certainly looked like a blowout. I mean, Gonzaga had a couple runs where they got it to single digits, and some people were like, okay, is Gonzaga back in it? I never thought Gonzaga was going to get back in it. Um, but I really enjoyed watching Baylor play. I mean, what were your guys' reactions to this game? I'll throw it to Clayton to start this one off. Uh, yeah. I didn't really, uh, yeah, I only looked at the highlights for this game when I watched it. I, didn't, I couldn't catch it because I couldn't watch it. I didn't have the opportunity to. But seeing the after stats and all and everything that went down, I feel like it came down to whoever wanted, like, I feel like it came down to whoever wanted it more. And I know that's kind of cliche, but in looking at the highlights, it looked like Baylor was playing so much better than Gonzaga. And, but it was just an interesting game. And, I, I really don't have too much of an opinion on it, but it was just a good game in general. Um, seeing this one, this short dude have 11 rebounds for, like you said, it was just insane. Like, in my, in my opinion, for a short, for like, it's 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 good for me to see like a short guy on a basketball team do great because <laughs> you don't really see that often. <laughs> but, <laughs> oh man, how tall how tall are you? Me? See, I'm I'm five foot six, so. I'm a kind of a short 
the guy right so now is he's, seeing it. he's not short to you he's six foot five he's not short to you yeah, but yeah, the short but, guy on the court was doing he, it. you know exactly what? he's a short guy on the I'm court. glad you got that out of this game you know what I'm glad you got that out of this game I'm really okay, happy that... for you I am <laughs> is that you're, you're gonna miss all the Jalen Cohn time that we had the past couple of years yes oh <laughs> man <laughs> but yeah that's i mean it's a really classic take on it like that's just my take on it so i know there's probably a better take but that's just me so i'll, I'll throw it over to uh cold cold so here you go <laughs> you can talk about all day how gonzaga should have been targeting uh to like timmy Moore, um or the fact that um you know jalen suggs maybe even should have got the ball a little bit more uh, or the fact of Gonzaga, like maybe, um, you know, Baylor just had more for it uh, than Gonzaga, more fight for it. But the fact of the matter is this. I, I think when you watch that game, you could feel the energies of each team and that Baylor's energy um, just felt different. Um, their defense was absolutely incredible for Gonzaga, uh, what Scott Drew came out with. And I think uh, – with kind of that type of stuff being said, uh, one thing that was incredible that I uh, looks back on is think about it like this. This has been Scott. Drew. First of all, congratulations for Scott Drew and Baylor. Um, this is the thing where um, he said back in 2003, uh, after he left Valparaiso to come uh, to Baylor, he said that this organization, everything at Baylor felt like they were ready to get a national title and he just wanted to achieve that for them. He has. It's incredible that he's been able to do this. He's been one of the best coaches in college basketball and one of the best coaches in the Big 12 for years now. So, I mean, I feel nothing but respect for him, for him to be able to accomplish this with Baylor. Uh, and I think just Baylor ran an incredible game. And uh, kind of like when I watched Kansas get – I mean, it was way worse when Kansas got whipped by USC. But when I watched that, it was one of those things where it's like you, you have moments – where USC could not be beaten that night. Way back earlier in the season, when Penn State played for Virginia Tech, Penn State was not getting beat that night. Baylor was not getting beat tonight. With how they played and how they came out, nobody's beating that Baylor team. Um, I think I even said during some of these podcasts that like um, Baylor obviously were in bad form. I talked about that a lot, but I think I also talked about the fact of if this team went on a run, the deeper they got, the more worried you should feel about them because it would help boost the confidence of this team. And it really did. And I think Baylor just got better and better every single game and you were able to see it. Um, Cause that included like with the dominating first half against Houston. And then overall, I, I, I don't know if I'm willing to call it domination over Gonzaga, but overall they commanded the game. So this was an incredible um, team for Baylor great coaching from Scott Drew and overall I mean I just have to tip my hat to Baylor congrats on not only representing the big 12 well but being able to get your first ever national title it's an incredible thing and I hope that they don't forget this moment for a long time and I throw this out here because I'm seeing this a little bit um oh, that's name's funny okay so big news in the college basketball world today I'll just throw this in here uh Sean Miller got fired at Arizona uh, FBI all that crap um I'm looking at these new odds, apparently. We have some odds out for the next job at Arizona. Scott Drew's in fourth. Do you buy that at all, Colby, or are you thinking that's just – that's not – No, 
So Scott Drew just won the national title at Baylor. I mean, right. if, if Scott Drew was to leave to another If they don't school, give him a lifetime extension in the next 48 hours, I don't know what they're doing, personally. I, I don't know if he's – I mean, he should. I don't know if he's going to get one now. He may like not right be now. a lifetime extension. He's not – I look, I, I get what you're saying. He's not Bill Self, but he's Baylor's Bill Self. You know what I'm saying? I, I No, I, I would even be willing to put him up there with Bill Self. My right. What I'm wanting to say – for most of it is like if Scott Drew was to leave to a team, he's leaving to an organization that is way bigger than Baylor. Like, I mean, not to be biased, but I think Kansas overall is bigger than Baylor. He would leave for that. He would leave for Duke. He would leave for maybe UVA, like Ohio state, Michigan, those schools. Like if he was to leave, but I don't think he will. Um, I think eventually he'll get a lifetime contract, but that's probably not even what he's worried about. He just seems like the type of guy that wants to win and wants to have good teams. I, I really like what Scott Drew brings to uh, Baylor. So. I like it. And um, two of the, the top two names at the top are Damon Stoudemire, obviously former Arizona player uh, and Tommy Floyd, who's a Gonzaga assistant coach. That'd be interesting. Um, and also Josh Passner at three. I don't know who these bookmakers are, but I don't know where they're getting their information from, but maybe that's something to watch. I don't know. All right. So this is what I want to do for most of the rest of the episode. I want to keep it short. I want to keep it simple. I want to throw some stats at you guys. And here we go. So just sit back, let me rant for a couple minutes, and then we can hit the ground running with a conversation. All right. So during the game, during the national championship game, which by the way, uh, let me throw out this real quick. The national championship game compared to 2019, the ratings dropped for that 14%. That to me means two things. One, Stop putting the games at nine o'clock. That is a terrible thing with a lot of big markets on the East Coast. You can't have that that late uh, with all the people that are probably going to want to just go to sleep. Um, and then, of course, you have the two names. Look, if you're a hardcore college basketball fan, that was an awesome game. But Gonzaga and Baylor are not premier programs. Like they're not they're, they're not Duke. They're not UNC. They're obviously not on any of those. They're not national. Um, they're great. They're really good programs. Like those were great teams, but they're not national. I mean. How many, how many times have I heard just this year that Gonzaga, the number one team throughout the entire season, no one knew where Gonzaga was. I have to keep telling people that it's in Spokane. Like, and even then, where's Spokane? Um, you know, so that to me was the reason for that. I'm not going to harp on that too much. I don't think college basketball is dying or anything, but yeah. So during and after the game, following the loss for Gonzaga, the only take that I'm seeing is that the reason they lost this game which was apparently their first real test in the tournament, which I'll counter uh, by saying UCLA just gave them a test, um, or maybe that was too late in the season. I don't know. But the reason that Gonzaga lost was because they play in a weak conference. Now, look, I don't know how much I buy into that because, look, I get it. It's WCC. It's not the ACC. It's not the Big Ten. It's not the Big 12. It's not even the Big East. But – just the thought of like, you don't know how to lose. So then you lose that to me just doesn't, I, I don't know how much I buy into that because I mean, it's not like these players don't know what losing is. They, it's not like they have never lost a basketball game in their life before. Um, again, like you said it earlier, what team is beating Baylor on that night? And that's kind of the, I guess the one flaw, if you call it that of this tournament, it's not, it, it's single elimination. You got to win six straight games and Gonzaga had an off night but they, they shot well, they shot over 50% from the field, but their three-point shooting wasn't there. And they got in a whole, in the first four minutes of the game and they couldn't come back from it. And that was the story. And Baylor, their guards were able to match up. Uh, shout out to Ishan Lamba for calling it out uh, last week on the pod. He was the only one right of our three. Um, 
but yeah, ba- Baylor just was unstoppable and Gonzaga could not stop them and they played well. They played well. Like, I, I don't know what to say. Uh, so I want to kind of just dive into that take because I kind of want to say it's like, okay, well, sure. That's a take you could have, but is that really like a fault of Gonzaga? Is that something that they can change? And this is, so this is what I want to go through. So I want to start out according to the net rankings. And if you want to dismiss net rankings this year, because you know, Colgate was in the top 10, whatever you can do that. But according to net rankings, the WCC was the eighth toughest conference. Uh, and if you want to use RPI, which is not a model that they use anymore, it was fifth. Now, of course, in January and February, the RPI on the WCC was much, much lower. It was in the teens. It was, I think, in like the 21s, 22s at one point. Uh, so yeah, the WCC is not a great conference. It's behind the Power Five, it's behind the Big East, and it's behind the American. Now, you can also say that the net ranking is held up by Gonzaga. And that is true, because with Gonzaga, the average net ranking of WCC teams is 125. But if you take them out, it's 138. And that drops them behind the Atlanta 10. Now, here's the thing. If you want to criticize Gonzaga for the conference that they're in, and you say that they need to play in a tougher conference, well, then this is where you get stuck. Because realistically, there are two options. Actually, there's only one option. Because you could say the Mountain West. You're not going to say the Big Sky. You're not going to say any of those. You're not going to say the Big West. not going to say the WAC, because those are terrible. They're one big conference. Gonzaga's not going there. If you want to say the Mountain West, you have to realize the WCC is better than the Mountain West. Yes, even without Gonzaga. BYU and St. Mary's hold the WCC up and the rest of those programs to a higher average net ranking than the Mountain West. They're the 12th best conference. Without Gonzaga, the WCC is the ninth. So that's point number one. So basically, the only other option that Gonzaga has is the Pac-12, which is sixth in the conference rankings and net rankings. Is that tough enough? I don't know. But you're obviously not going to see them go to the Big Ten or the Big East because those teams are in the East. Spokane and the state of Washington are so far removed from the rest of the United States of America. I mean, yes, they're connected, but let's say, let's say they've joined the toughest conference this year. The toughest conference this year, according to net rankings, was the Big Ten. If they joined the Big Ten, the furthest West team, the closest team to Spokane, Washington is Nebraska. The distance between Nebraska and Gonzaga would be the same, the same distance between Nebraska and Maryland. Now imagine Maryland or Gonzaga have to play each other. It's not happening. Like you're not getting them into the toughest conferences because they're just too far away. So the only viable option is the Pac-12. But the problem is, will the Pac-12 admit them? The only way, the only way that happens is if they do a Notre Dame. If they do a Notre Dame in the ACC, not a football school, just pure basketball, because they have not played football there since 1941, since World War II. Like that's that's the only logical way for Gonzaga to get into a tougher conference. So now I want to go to this. Maybe Gonzaga was not tested during the tournament. They had a weak tourney path. Well, this isn't really the year to say that they had a weak tourney path because the whole tournament was weak. Think about that. There were the most upsets ever through the Elite Eight. If you take away the final four upsets that happened in 2014 because of UConn and Kentucky winning their final four games and meeting the national championship through the Elite Eight to get to the final four, this was the most upset heavy tournament in history. So that means it, you have all these good teams losing early. That's not just Gonzaga's fault. That's kind of an everybody problem. So that's kind of point number two. I mean, you look at the other twos and the other threes, uh, other two seeds. You have Ohio State losing first round, Oral Roberts. Houston makes it to the final four, but they didn't have to play a single digit seed. Alabama loses in the Sweet 16 to an 11 seed. Other three seeds, Arkansas makes it to the Elite Eight, but they only beat a 15 seed by two points. 
West Virginia doesn't make it out of the first weekend. Texas loses in the first round. Four seeds. Uh, Purdue, they lost in the first round. Oklahoma State loses in the Sweet 16 to a 12. Uh, Michigan, or not uh, Michigan, Florida State, they lose in the Sweet 16 to a one seed. So that's pretty acceptable. But all in all, two, three, and four seeds throughout the entire tournament were five and 12. And again, you can't even say, of course, that Gonzaga didn't play their two, three, and four seeds because they did in their non-conference. And you're never, ever going to get non-conference play in February or January because that just just doesn't happen. You're never going to get a Gonzaga versus an Iowa in February. Like that's just not going to happen because I was going to be playing in their conference. They're going to be playing in the big 10. Gonzaga will never get those games. It's not like, it's not like the sec where in the second to last week of the college football season, they're playing the Citadel. That's not going to happen. Um, so I don't know how Gonzaga gets better there. Now Gonzaga does have a history because uh, obviously the point is when the moment gets too big for them in March, they lose. And to be fair, since 2001, Gonzaga is one in 12 versus three seeds or higher in the tournament. That's not good. But then if it comes down to you need to be in a tough tournament or in a tough conference, excuse me, in the regular season, why was the Big Ten so bad this year? The Big Ten was the best team in the tournament, was the best conference in the tournament with the highest net ranking and the most teams. Yet everyone except Michigan really made a strong run. Why was that? Iowa underperformed. Ohio State underperformed. Illinois underperformed. Michigan was really the only one that made a true run. And then they had a couple of other teams. Michigan State was in the first four. Uh, Maryland won a game. Rutgers won a game. But aside from that, the Big Ten, nothing special. Wisconsin had a great game against North Carolina and then got stomped by Baylor in the second round. So this correlation isn't exactly one for one. It's not the toughest conferences always win. And look, under Mark Few, it's been 22 years now under Mark Few for Gonzaga. They made two Final Fours. Is that good enough? I mean, maybe, probably not, uh, if you want to hold them to the higher standard of, say, a blue blood program. But under Mark Few, they've won their conference one way or another in 20 years. Uh, there's one year that they got through in the Actually, no, they've won their regular season in 20 years out of 22. The first year that Mark Few was hired, they didn't win the conference, but they won their conference tournament. And then there was one year where they didn't win either. They were second in the regular season and they didn't win the conference tournament. There were four years though, that I think would fit this argument the best of this. You need to have a tough loss somewhere in there. There were four years where they have won the regular season championship, but did not win their postseason tournament. 2019 was the best combo of talent and this sort of character building loss that we're saying that Gonzaga would need to have. They won the regular season championship like we expect them to, but they got a tough loss in their postseason tournament and they were one seed, but they lost in the Elite Eight. Now, that is only one year, but I mean, they've made the tournament every year Mark Few's been there. Six, uh, six times they finished in the Sweet 16. Twice they finished in the Elite Eight and then they've won a game in the Final Four twice. They have won a national championship. So I just don't know what more people are wanting Gonzaga to do, I guess is the question, because let's, let's look at this. If we want to break this down by conferences, and we now have 20 champions, 20 champions is a good even number. We can go back to 2001. The last 20 champions, eight of them from the ACC, seven of them from the Big East, three from the SEC, two from the Big 12. So we're missing in there the Big 10. We're missing the Pac-12. And we're missing the American. We're missing the toughest conference. 
and we're missing the conference that Gonzaga is most likely to go to to get that sort of tougher atmosphere uh, to maybe get those necessary losses in January and February to prepare them for March. Now, I don't know. I, I don't know if that is really what's necessary. Again, we have not had an undefeated champion since Indiana. It's their last, cra- it's their last claim to relevancy. But I don't know, man. I just don't know, like, what is the last step for Gonzaga? Is it moving to a tougher conference? Because I'll, I'll say I don't think it is. I think that they can still win with this formula because Mark Few is a good coach and they're bringing in good players. And the fact that they, you know, play weaker opponents, I don't think that necessarily matters because they play good teams in their non-conference. They had an awesome non-conference schedule this year. And I don't know. I think it's just... I think it was definitely more of an emotional response because whether or not you want to look at them and call those players soft or whatever, because there were, there were a lot of uh, takes flying around after Baylor just mopped the floor with them, but like, say it's a seven game series and it's not just a one game thing. Does Gonzaga win that? I don't know, but it's definitely close. They were definitely the two best teams in the country this season and they met in the final. I, I don't know what more you want me to say. I mean, look, I think, I think that's all I've got, but I'd love to get your guys' thoughts on this. I mean, is the reason that they're in a is, – is the reason that they're losing these games in March, that they haven't won a national championship with Mark Few, is it mostly on the fact that they play in a weaker conference? I'll throw it to Colby because I think he has – I think you would have some uh, thoughts on a lot of the points that I just brought up there, and then I can throw it to Clayton uh, if he wants I was, anything I was going to gonna let Clayton go, actually, first, since I knew I actually had a little bit to talk about for this, so – Clayton, if you have anything, feel free. <laughs> I um, I I don't really have a I don't really have a lot on this situation, but I feel like that one point you brought up where it could be just people reacting to this loss and being like, "Oh, we need a we need a, a better conference or something like that." I feel like it could be a emotional response, but I really don't have much more on that. I really don't have any other points because. <laughs> Uh, I'll, I'll, you know what? I'll take what you said. Cause I, I think that you bring it back up. It reminded me of something. And to mm-hmm. me, I think a lot of people already have already had Gonzaga written off and I don't know why, but college basketball and Gonzaga seem to have this unique response when it comes to the general fan base in college football and in college basketball, like for earlier, earlier round games, when it comes to, I guess we can call them the underdog. When it comes to the underdog, we root for them. But then when it comes to Gonzaga, there's a lot of hatred. And maybe it's because, look, the media threw around a lot of stuff about greatest team of all time if they had won. And they hadn't won yet, which is fair. But it seems that a lot of people are just enjoying the fact that they were right. Because they said for the whole year, oh, Gonzaga's overrated or something like that. And then when it comes time for them to finally lose, they just – beat their chest and say, I was right the whole time. Um, I think that's what it boils down to for a lot of those emotional responders. And when I point out that they're kind of stuck, it's like, okay, so then what do you want Gonzaga to do? Because if they can't get out of their conference and the Pac-12 doesn't let them be in ACC type Notre Dame, uh, what, what can they do? And if they can never win a national championship while playing in the WCC, well, then should they just give up basketball? I mean, that's basically what you're saying. If, if they can't win a national championship in the WCC and they can't move out of it, then 
they're stuck and they can't do anything. So what's the point in even trying, you know, Colby, I'll throw it to you. I want to get your thoughts on this. For the main part of this take where you said that it is mostly because Gonzaga is in a bad conference. To people that have that take, I do not understand a single reason why that is your take. If, if you have that as your take, I personally do not feel like you watch college basketball or at the very least pay attention. I'm actually a little bit more passionate about this one. Here's why. Let's look at Gonzaga's season, right? You, you, you brought up the point that out-of-conference teams, um, like they, they aren't going to play in like February, March, and even like a good portion of January because of uh, the, the conferences, right? That's all, like, you know, that makes right. sense. You'll never see, say, you'll, you'll never see Virginia Tech play West Virginia in February. That's never going to happen. Yes. Exactly. So, like, you're, you're not going to see that stuff because you have to have your conference play. So, um, if you're wanting to bring up the point of, you know, maybe to mix a little bit more of those challenges into February, maybe try to have those conferences work that out, I can get that. Well, let's look at the teams that Gonzaga played prior to February, Yeah. So, I'm starting off in November. Gonzaga plays Auburn in their second game, but their first game, my Jayhawks, where, sure, uh, Kansas uh, was only lost by 12, but I watched that game. Gonzaga manhandled Kansas. That was not a 12-point loss. That was – Kansas was lucky to lose by 12 in a score of 102-90 to because Kansas was able to put up some points in the first game when both teams are kind of trying to get a feeler. Let's go to December. Gonzaga plays West Virginia and wins by five. They were meant to play Baylor. As you said, the game gets canceled. They play against Iowa, win by 11. Play against UVA, stomp them and beat them by 23. January is then when their regular season overall starts. So as you can see with the teams I listed there, UVA was a four seed, Iowa's was a two seed, Kansas was a three seed, all in their part of the bracket, which was I remember why we brought up that the fact that we said that they were kind of built to make the final four this year. If you want to make that argument, I, I, I can generally understand that, but they were still booked to play Baylor and West Virginia. These are not, you know, what cakewalk teams. These are great teams. These are all teams that by the end of the season, like every single one of those teams I mentioned were like a top 25 team in the AP poll. These are great teams. Uh, like at least Kansas is a, like one of those blue blood organizations UVA was uh, one of the teams that was booked to be like the best in the ACC. It's not like they had bad competition. Now let's look at their conference. Loyola Marymount. They've done some magic and March madness this past decade. If I remember right, I know San Fran did that. That was the San Fran Duke game, right? You have BYU. They're one of the teams back in 2020 before the COVID season got canceled that I was high on that BYU team was a team that smoked Virginia tech out in Maui was a team that I think kept up with Kansas out in Maui. So BYU has had some good teams recently. That BYU um, uh, team finished 10th in net rankings last year. Yeah, that team was uh, like, I remember because I, uh, cause I actually went out to the Maui tournament. And I think I've talked about this before because, uh, you know, KU, VT person, they're both out there, want to go. There was three teams there in Kansas State and BYU that I felt like it was a genuine possibility that we were going to see a little bit of a Maui reunion. Like, that was how good a competition, like, BYU was. BYU put Kansas, like, that Kansas team that everyone said, like, was meant to win that national title, and which was part of the reason I was blown last year we didn't get it. That Kansas team felt like they were going to win it. Um, 
Like, they made that Kansas team sweat. It's not like, I mean, this conference isn't as good as some of the other conferences. No. But they have their moments, and they have some big upsets as well. So it's not like they don't bring it in March. Now, if you want to talk about other conferences to bring it to, you make a great point. There's really only, to me, two conferences that make sense. One, and this isn't about bias, it's the Big 12. Because as you said, yes, like, you know, East Coast, West Coast doesn't make sense whatsoever. But West Virginia and the Big 12, let's be honest, that doesn't make much sense either. Yet West Virginia is still able to pull it off. So if any if any of like the really big top three conferences of basketball was to want to do it, Big 12 would be the one to do it. But I don't think that Big 12 pulled that trigger. So really the most likely is the Pac-12. And as you said, does the Pac-12 really want to pull a Notre Dame scenario where you just are pulling over the basketball program? And then maybe, just maybe, if – Gonzaga is doing well. You pull over other programs. Maybe they would reintroduce football. I don't know, but I just don't know. Like if the Pac-12 is that big of an upgrade, because other than, of course, you know, this tournament where they looked really good, most other times when you kind of say the Pac-12 isn't going to do well, they don't really do well. So I mean, you want to make that argument? Make that argument back to Pac-12. So. To me, it is nothing about the conference whatsoever because Gonzaga has proven from time to time that they can be a one seed or all like up in there and they can compete with some of the best teams. Uh, as I said, with November and December, if you want to talk about mixing it, as I said, in January and February, that makes perfect sense. I would actually 100% be in full support of mixing some non-conference games in there to give teams like Gonzaga a test before March. That can make sense. Um, the one thing that, like if you want to bring up a point that I could really agree with is the fact that Gonzaga struggles in March, particularly after like the first weekend. If you want to talk about that point, I can get behind that. Cause that is something where it's the, I mean, you even said, and I didn't even know that fact was the point of like one to three seeds. Like Gonzaga has a horrible record in, in March. And that's something where it's like, if, if you think that Gonzaga as a program and the mentality of the, like the program come March isn't in shape. Maybe that can make sense. Um, like I, I can understand that to a part and maybe that's something that Mark few himself has to fix. That's the only thing I can understand from this is to me, not a conference scenario at all. You've seen so many times, even in this past decade, when uh, non big conference schools will make it to the final four. I mean, we didn't expect UCLA this year. They made it. Um, though they I mean they're a big conference in Pac-12. VCU made it to the Final Four. We're talking about them a lot because of VCU and UCLA comparisons. Wichita State's making it to the Final Four. Uh, I mean, even with uh, like the Big East, so they're a fairly big conference. They've been making the Final Four and have been winning it over the past like decade and whatnot. So winning it all. So I don't think the conference scenario is as big of an issue as talking about overall competing with these top seeds in March for Gonzaga and. I don't know if that's a pressure of the organization type of thing. I think when you're printing all of these articles of this Gonzaga team might be the best of all time uh, because, you know, first, first time a team was undefeated in 50 years, everyone was talking about that, that, that puts pressure on people. And that's something that I don't think is going to be, you know, understood from too many people on, on the outside. The amount of, I, what I would really want to know if I was able to talk with one of the Gonzaga players is how much pressure did they feel? Because genuinely, that's such a big thing in this case. They were getting compared to so many big teams, and people were booking them as the favorite. At that point, you, you're, you have that expectation of being able to do so well that you could be getting in your own heads at that point. 
So at the end of the day, I, I wouldn't even say like for the players, say in a weak mentality. One thing that people have been trying to go about a lot for this tournament, particularly after the EJ Liddell disgusting stuff was that these are kids at the end of the day. And they're going to be feeling a lot of pressure. These these aren't professionals. They haven't been dealing it w- with it for years. Like LeBron has been dealing it with it for years and he just kind of lives with it and is okay with it, whatever. These are kids that like, this is the biggest spotlight they've ever been in. And they had expectations of grandeur. Like it was the, some of the biggest expectations I think we've seen in college basketball for a while at the very least since like that Kentucky team that went undefeated. So I, I, yeah, I mean, I've went on for a while with this, but overall, I can understand a little bit if you want to say to mix up the schedule, but I do not think this is an overall conference scenario, uh, like like a conference issue. If you really want to book uh, say an issue, it would be overall Gonzaga's performance against top three like teams that are seated one to three, as uh, you'd said, Daniel, um, in March. That, if you want to harp on that point, go ahead. I can understand. And even still, that record, I mean, there's some taint behind that because Gonzaga hasn't been a machine. Like, that's the record under Mark Few. But you have to remember, this Gonzaga hasn't been a machine for long. Like, yeah. their first time as a one seed was 2013, the 2013 tournament. And then they had an eight seed, a two seed, but then they went to a lemon. The consistency really started in 2017 when they were a one seed. And they made it to the championship. Then they were a four seed. Then they were a one seed, lost in that elite eight, like I said, in 2019. Didn't have a tournament last year, but probably would have been a one or a two, and then a one. So that's, let's see, one, two, three, four, five. And then you want to count the other two years. Seven. Seven out of 22 years were they really that upper echelon of college basketball. And then the rest, I mean, they had a two seed and a three seed early on. But the rest, they're double-digit seeds. Like, Gonzaga was not the machine that Mark Hughes has turned into. So losing those games early on, it kind of makes that record a little weaker. Now, yes, again, it's only one win compared to how many losses. At the end of the day, if you were to say cut them some slack when they were double-digit seats. But, I mean, I don't know, man. I think that this – I think that this just speaks to just some people's internal biases. And yeah. when it comes down to it, um, Gonzaga is reloading next year. And I think a lot of people will have them as their number one. I think they'll play another tough non-conference. I don't know if they have tough non-conference games lined up already. But – uh, I think that they'll perform well if they have a loss next season and they don't go into next season with this long undefeated streak going into the tournament. I think that they, they're definitely still back for it for the championship. I'm not writing them off and it could be their year next year. Who knows? Anything's possible, mm-hmm. but they just had an off night. I think that's what it comes down to. If they had an off night shooting the three, Jalen Suggs went out early, interrupted some offensive flow and Baylor's defense was just swarming. Like they, they couldn't do what they wanted to do. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think that, that was my uh, take from all that. It just was, it was interesting to see and seeing so many people agree with that thought. I, I think that that was just something that I needed to look into a little more because it was something I disagreed with. So I wanted to cover that today. Uh, I think that's just about how we're going to wrap things up. We talked a little bit of NFL at the start of the show, a little bit of Virginia Tech basketball going into next season with the Michael Durr uh, transfer from USF. A uh, little bit of a note on Stanford athletics and then the final four recap. And then of course, the debate on Gonzaga for the past, I don't know how long that was, <laughs> but we hope you enjoy listening to it. Uh, we hope you enjoy listening to the 3304 sports podcast. You can find us on anchor and Spotify. Be sure to go check us out on Twitter at 3304 sports. I want to thank you all for listening today for Colby on Bergstrom and Clayton Pfeiffer. I'm Dan Steinbach. Thanks for listening and take care.